that empathic understanding then is what builds society. That's what that's the that's the glue of human culture. And the, although we think that with Facebook, you know, we can have three thousand friends or whatever, that is not the same as developing an empathic understanding of an individual. In fact, the internet, as we all know, is a place for extraordinary bullying and and general general um, uh, difficulties for many young uh, kids. They they feel, my God, I wrote that text to my friend five minutes ago, why haven't they called back? Do they not like me anymore? Hello and welcome to Digital Mindfulness. I'm your host, Lawrence Sampofo. Today we're here with Dr. Peter Wybrow. As the director of the Semmel Institute of Neuroscience and Human Behavior at UCLA, Peter has been working for decades at the cutting edge of neuroscience and psychiatry. In particular, Peter focuses his work on the effects of technologies on our brains and what we can do about it. You should listen to this episode if you want to understand how digital technologies impact our brains, why people born in the digital age suffer from greater anxiety, and how you can develop a well-tuned brain. But first of all, welcome to the show. For over three years now, we've brought to you the best teachers, thought leaders, and industry experts to teach you how to be your best self in a digitally distracted world. If you're new to our show, then the best place to find out much more about us is to visit digitalmindfulness.net forward slash start, which has a collection of some required listening podcasts where we discuss everything from becoming more focused to habit building, cyberbullying, and much, much more. Okay. Enjoy the show with Dr. Peter Wybrow. So, Peter Wybrow, thank you so much for being a part of Digital Mindfulness today. I'm really thrilled that you could make it onto the show. So, welcome. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate being here. I like your podcasts. So, Peter, I wonder if you'd share a little bit about your history and particularly how you came to be working in neuroscience and psychiatry and also, how that led you over to thinking about the effects of technology on our brains? Well, I, uh, I grew up in England, as you probably can hear, and I came to America um, as a migrant sometime in the 70s. And I'm an academic. I was trained in medicine and uh, physiology and things in England at University College in London, University College Hospital Medical School there. And... Um, I studied uh, endocrinology for a while, and then I became a psychiatrist, to make it very quick, because I was interested in thyroid hormones and how they influence the brain, um, and particularly how they how they modulate mood and emotion, which they do. So that's been my sort of academic research side of things. And when I first came to the U.S. in the 70s, I fell into a situation at Dartmouth College where I suddenly became an administrator. I was chairman of the Department of Psychiatry there and then became dean of the medical school. So um, suddenly I was sort of up to my ears in um, managing institutions, but I kept my science going and I worked then at the University of Pennsylvania because I didn't much like being a dean. And then I migrated again to the West Coast where uh, for the last um, 15 
plus years, I've been director of a very large institute and hospital, which focuses upon neuroscience and human behavior. Um, it's called the Semmel Institute now, though 60 years ago when it was invented by the Californian legislature, it was it was called the Neuropsychiatric Institute. So um, the thing that fascinates me about this job is that uh, I get to do all the things that I like, and I work with a lot of smart people, and um, at the same time, I get to use my neuroscience in trying to understand various cultural subjects. One of the things that I've written various books, but and they started by really with my expertise in endocrinology and uh, and neuroscience. But then I moved to being interested in emotion. I wrote a book for the general public called A Mood Apart, which was very popular. And then my agent at the time, when this was back in the late 90s, uh, said, you know, there's something really peculiar about America, the way everybody rushes around as if their heads have been cut off. And um, don't you think this is a manic society? So that led to a book called American Mania, When More Is Not Enough, which won a few prizes. And and I became increasingly interested in American culture and how it you can explain some of the strangeness of America because it is a rather idiosyncratic country. You know, everybody who lives here thinks that the rest of the world is like America, whereas in fact everybody who visits it knows immediately that it's absolutely not like the rest of the world. And so my last two books have been focused upon the elements of American culture that I think may be derived from the natural um, proclivity of migrants. You know, migrants are different from most other people. They have a, they're much more optimistic. They're much more energetic. They tend to be uh, the folks who decide that life is not good enough where they are, and they move usually thousands of miles and start a new family. But they do so much as individuals, while they develop a nuclear family in the new place, they very often leave their original nuclear family. Just as in a statistic, for example, in England or in, in Britain, um, most people, about 60% of people die within six miles of where they were born. In America, in most people, if you go to, when I give lectures, for example, I ask, where do you, how many of you are living a thousand miles from where you were Born. And most, very often, 50% of the audience will put up a hand. So the migrant population is very different from the general population. And that's, of course, become increasingly so in recent years as technology of flying and boats and that sort of thing has made migration around the world particularly well, much easier than it was. And in addition to that, although we think that migration is always driven by economy, or at least that's the sort of general general sense, it isn't really. It's driven by, I think, this temperament of the migrant, which is very individualistic, very uh, energetic, focused upon very often materialism, especially in America. And so this shapes the culture. And so I, the book, American Mania, Where More Is Not Enough, speaks to why it is that 
American the American economy is constantly trying to grow, and yet you know here we are. America's, I think, um, what three hundred and thirty forty million people, which is about four percent of the population of the world, but is consuming something like twenty five percent of the world's resources. So we in, uh, traded resources. So you end up with this interesting anachronism where you find that. Um, America's uh, norm is impossible if you think about it as a, on a global level, and that has all sorts of implications for the environment and so on and so forth. So the second book, which is called The Well-Tuned Brain, was an attempt to take what we know, what I've just been describing in very cryptic terms, and think about what would be a way in which we could better by better by using what we now know about uh, neuroscience and human behavior, how could we better construct something that would enable us to live a more balanced and um, uh, life that would be perhaps sustainable? And to do that, I go back to the, in this last book, I go back to the uh, 18th century to uh, when the Enlightenment theories drove the concept that built the fundamental constitution of America, which is very individualistic, as you know, but it's based upon concepts of the European Enlightenment and the way in which Jefferson and others here wrote that stuff up. They were they were drawing upon people such as Locke and Hume and, and uh, Smith, particularly Adam Smith. And if you look at the way in which America has evolved, it is around those concepts. But if you look more carefully, you realize that actually Adam Smith didn't say that individualism and um, markets were the solution. He basically said that... Um, freeing individuals so they could be entrepreneurial was very important, but the common good was essential. What he, what we now call empathic understanding, he wrote two books, as you know, one of which is called The Moral Sentiments, um, and the other was The Wealth of Nations. But if you put those two books together, you have a fairly complete understanding of what would build a balanced society. And I think we've gone off the boat because we've sort of forgotten the social aspects, and we've tied our star, tied our boat to the star of individualism. I'm talking now particularly about it, the U.S., which works, but it also has downsides, considerable downsides. And so, coming to what you're interested in, and your um, work has been focused upon, uh, the digital revolution has tended to maximize that individualism because now we can connect with individuals uh, through technology in a way that we've never been able to do before. And my basic thesis then in the last book is that you, what you do with that access is you create a, um, a short circuit, if you will. You hijack, as we were talking about before, the very ancient brain, which is very individualistic and tied very much to survival and what happens now, and you short-circuit the planning, thoughtful, deliberative uh, understanding of 
human attachment, the way in which we learn to trust each other and so on and so forth, that stuff tends to be diminished, which has major implications for social organization and um, the way in which we probably could survive on this planet. So that's um, a rather long um, summary of some of my ideas. Yeah. So Peter, in your book, The World Tune Brain, one of the things that you talk about um, at length is a whole idea that the way that we use digital technologies hijacks our brain. And as you mentioned earlier, leads us to be slightly less um, empathic and more individualistic. But I'm really wondering what led you to write this book and come up with these ideas. Was this lack of empathy, was this something that you experienced yourself? Well, I think it's happening um, very um, precisely here in the U.S. I mean, I, uh, the you can take various statistics, um, but for example, um, people in my generation, I was born um, around the Second World War time, uh, my have much less anxiety, believe it or not, than people of my daughter's generation, born in the 60s and 70s, and the generation that was born after that, the, the generations that were born after that have even greater anxiety. And just last night I was at a meeting of some persons who help uh, support the Institute here, who are persons who've donated and provided endowments for the Institute's work about childhood anxiety, which is rampant. I mean, it, it's, um, and when you, when you are young and you lose that natural developmental evolution of learning to trust in the paradigm of parenting the child, I mean, and then from there being able to experiment within that that um, opportunity of trust to create something of yourself, and we call that character eventually. And at the same time, of course, you begin to learn because the culture provides with the opportunity for objective education. They ends up ideally with a balance between the emotional drive of individualism, which we were talking about before, which I was talking about before, and the social construct of recognizing that other people are also individuals and if you can put yourself in their shoes, the empathic stuff which Smith wrote so eloquently about in in um, the moral sentiments, then you end up with a complete human being that can follow a, a logical argument, distill it through their own emotional predisposition, their sense of um, uh, history within their own experience, which is what we call intuition, and come up with something which is pretty logical and straightforward and has room for other people to disagree with them. You know, that process is the development of the human brain, and we're very clever creatures if we if we do that. But the but the and so the, if you look at the evolution of the human brain, and you know, there's a part of it which is very very ancient, and then there's a which is what we might call the engine, and that's what um, drives you getting up in the morning, etc. But there's also a there's also an intellectual part, which is the new brain, 
which is the frontal cortex predominantly, and that is quite young. I mean, Homo sapiens in our present form are really quite young creatures. We're only probably um, you know, 300,000 years old. Um, of course, we come from a long line of primates, but um, uh, that particular reflection, that Homo sapien, in other words, creature of wisdom, knowledge, um, is very much tied to the new brain, and it can be eclipsed by the old brain if the old brain is given enough uh, if the reins are taken off the old brain. So if you have built a culture like we've built now, for example, where you have a digital world where you can get stimulation immediately and you give a child an iPad at the age of 18 months uh, because they're fascinated, you know, their old brain is tied very much to changing light, to ch any change. Uh, most people... Um, if a, if a loud noise occurred right now in your studio you would pay attention to that, you wouldn't be paying attention to me because that's something novel and something intrusive. And the the old brain is tied to that because it's a survival mechanism. And so if you give a child something that preoccupies them, their attention span grows shorter and shorter. And it's already short when you start, of course, because the task of childhood is really to create an awareness of the world beyond oneself and actually to develop such old-fashioned things as patience and, you know, um, um, reflection and all the things that the frontal lobes do, and then that's where you get the balance. But if you don't do that because you create an environment where a child doesn't have the opportunity to do that, you don't sit them out in the backyard with a, with a saucepan and a wooden spoon where they can dig and and find worms and bang on it and you know just generally experiment if you if you give them a, a tool which of course those things are but a tool that constantly engages them uh, such as a brightly shiny thing that you can tap on and it will do other things for you you actually change the way in which their brains develop and so the uh, I think you had somebody on your show who was talking about contemplative. Well, I think that was the word, contemplative um, um, digitization or something like that. Um, but that's that's all well and good. But you're not going to get to the contemplative part if you start a young child on something which is going to reduce their attention span. So at the age of seven or eight, you then put them in an English class and they're trying to learn English grammar, and they can't possibly concentrate that long. So we've created for ourselves a fascinating dilemma, I think, where our technology is truly engaging and interesting, but it's also depriving us, in my opinion, with the reflective, contemplative, opportunities to engage that technology in a way that maximizes our benefits. At the moment, of course, it's it's harnessed by the merchant because we the merchant knows very well that if you can keep that old brain 
interested, you'll buy the damn thing. I mean, why do you think people line up outside the iPhone um, establishment when the old one works perfectly well, but there's a new one coming out that you know has a slightly different plug in it, so you have to have to buy a new plug and, uh, it, and after you've bought your iPhone. I mean, I'm being somewhat cynical, but the fact is that that our, our materialism, which drives our economy, and then you come back to Adam Smith and so on, because we've built an economy that just continues to expand. And so this whole thing is, it, it, it's so interwoven that it's very difficult to shift human culture back into a mode where some sort of contemplation can be achieved. I mean, why, for example, do you have an interest in these things, even though you're a digital engineer? I don't know. I must be something to do with the way you were brought up, probably, because maybe you didn't have an iPad stuck in front of your nose at the age of two. I don't know what did happen. But you, you, if you're following me, we've built a culture which is fascinating to the old brain, but not necessarily ideal for the development of balanced human beings. So I, the title of the book, The Well-Tuned Brain, is taken from the idea that, um, you know, the, the clavier, which was... Uh, the sort of the first piano was constantly going out of tune and J.S. Bach wrote something called um, the, the Well-Tempered Clavier and this was a student notebook in which uh, people had to do these exercises and also taught how to tune the brain. So the, it's a metaphor. The title of the book is a metaphor that we have to learn how to tune our brains and you learn that by understanding who you are. That's the first part of the book. Who do you think you are? And the second part of the book is, and it, that goes through things like concentration and uh, um, and and how how we what in, what is intuition? You know, how does the brain work? How, it, um, uh, but it also ties into political economy and and tries to point out that if you understand the brain, you can see why it is that we have all these strange sort of economic turmoils and keep on going into bubbles and then trying to get our way out of them, et cetera, et cetera. The second part of the book tries to say, if we were to really take seriously what we know about the way the brain works now, we would not be creating, we would be more mindful, let me put it that way, of a society, of what society is doing and build enough spaces, enough breathing spaces into it that you wouldn't be forcing children into having ADHD at the age of seven. I think this is really fantastic, Peter, and I really and I'd like to touch back on something that you mentioned earlier about how our society now is more anxious um, than when you was when you were growing up. And I wonder if you can just talk a little bit more about that and just explain why that is. Is it exclusively the the fault of digitization? Would you say that we have a culture now that is basically an on-demand culture? We expect everything right now or are there other factors involved no i think that's i think that is part of the very important part of the equation actually that um you know i i um i'm old enough to remember that if you wanted to study something you had to go to the library and you took 
two by five cards with you and you wrote down lots of notes and then you shuffled them so that you could understand the notes, et cetera, et cetera. Now you just pick up your your um, smartphone, um, go to Wikipedia and hope that the information you get is uh, objective, yes? You don't have to do, you don't have to go through that process of analysis for yourself. So there is... And I, that was beginning when, when I first started doing statistics. You, it, you didn't have computers uh, as much as you had uh, hand-held devices that you had to pull the lever, and you had to know a whole bunch of equations in order to uh, analyze the statistics. Nobody knows anything about the equations anymore. You just throw them into a machine, and you know it, it'll give you the it'll give you the analysis based upon the data you put in there, and you tell them. You'd like to compare various variables with various, uh, and that will do it for you. So it's almost as if you have, we have, we shortcuts, which are very, very valuable and have enabled us to have an enormously fascinating society, are not as useful as they might be for the individual who is trying to develop their own capacities for study and learning. So it is, it is in part, that everything is available instantaneously you don't you don't really learn as much and you don't you don't exercise your brain in the same way as we don't exercise our bodies you know that it's not irrelevant that 60% of the american population are overweight and 30% of them are actually medically obese yes and interestingly enough that turns out to be the case the most the fattest people in the world are english speaking believe it or not that's another aside but but um so you know if you don't have to open the garage door or get out of the off the settee to turn the television on slowly uh, you forget how to do those things and if you all you have to do is to press your smartphone to figure out whether you know um charles darwin was um a local pop singer or whether he actually um, uh, developed the theory of human evolution, uh, you don't get the nuance and the details which enable the human brain to become as clever as as, uh, uh, as, as it is capable of. Now, you know, a lot of people would disagree with me and they'd say, well, uh, technology is just the secret to the future. Eventually, we're going to fuse our brains with technology and we'll be one happy family. Um, I don't believe that. I think that um, the way in which human beings develop now is very similar to the way they developed um, a couple of hundred thousand years ago. You know, it's by experience and that there's a lot more around. But I think that the idea that somehow we are above our environment and we don't have to worry about the digitization, the fact that we have everything instantly... I think that's shifting the way in which individuals perceive themselves and perceive the world. And I I don't think it's necessarily a positive shift. I mean, I, I think it's, I'm grateful that I learned how to write longhand. And I'm, uh, a lot of people, you know, can't do that anymore. So I, and, and it's not just the, it's not just a nostalgia the idea of hand-eye coordination and the ability through that hand-eye coordination to express an idea in this wavy, 
line that you put on a piece of paper, that's a, you know, that's a, that's an athletic prowess that many people are losing. One of the things that you talk about in the book, Peter, is this whole idea of attachment and how the human brain is constantly seeking to form bonds with other humans through things like empathy. And this is what makes us stronger. And everything you were just speaking about in terms of, you know, kind of going to the library and doing research in that way, it implies that um, there's something physical about learning and then there's something physical about kind of going out and contacting and being being around other people that perhaps is um something that is lessened when we're online all the time when we're digitized all the time and i'm just wondering whether you think actually this is true or not whether in order to have greater attachment these greater connections with people that more um, physicality and more movement, uh, more kind of in-person connection is needed. Um, yes, I, I think that that is very important. You know, the the other driving force, other than individualism in in the human psyche, is uh, is attachment to other creatures because we have a very long period of of uh, development and we're totally dependent initially on the kindness of others, our parents and strangers and so on and so forth. And that, uh, that organic interaction I write in the book, um, you probably read that chapter on love, which is starts with my, my daughter runs a sheep farm actually. And, uh, she has a, a young daughter herself and it talks about the, the similarity between the bonding almost immediately this happens to be in Vermont which is a cold area of uh, of of America in the winter and um uh, the bonding of the of the of the lamb to the ewe is absolutely essential to survival and that's all driven by smell and 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 uh, by touch and by warmth and so on and so forth well actually the bonding of a human mother or father to their child is driven by exactly the same biological variables and so if we don't provide for that then the natural attachment does not develop and it's only through a stable attachment that young children come to trust those around them. And it's trust that enables individuals to then review the circumstances that they experience and decide for themselves what is constructive and what is not constructive. So you have a continuum, basically, between attachment, trust, self-regulation, and then you move to empathy, where once you understand that continuum as a young child, and it happens quite quickly, you know, that young children can be empathic by two to two and a half to three years old. They, if they see somebody crying, they will come over and comfort them. And empathic behavior then is the understanding, the capacity to put yourself in somebody else's shoes you know, Smith used the analogy in those days. Imagine your brother on the rack. This is, he was writing in the mid-1700s. You can't, you can't understand what he's going through unless you place yourself on the rack 
and realize the pain and the tragedy and the, the fear, etc., etc. That empathic understanding then is what builds society. That's what that's the that's the glue of human culture. And the, although we think that with Facebook, you know, we can have three thousand friends or whatever. That is not the same as developing an empathic understanding of an individual. In fact, the Internet, as we all know, is a place for extraordinary bullying and, and general, general um, uh, uh, difficulties for many young uh, kids. They, they feel, my God, I wrote that text to my friend five minutes ago. Why haven't they called back? Do they not like me anymore? Uh, so uh, the, the way in which human attachment works has not changed. That's my point. But our technology has changed such that we are frustrating that developmental path that I was trying to describe a little earlier. So I think you're right that, um, that the, the way in which um, you have to have, I think you've called it digital mindfulness, you have to have some sort of understanding of all this in order to keep that developmental path um, without you have to be able to develop that path without encroachment of the technology, which then distorts it, and you end up with weird people. <laughs> yes, um, I'm wondering then um, what do you, what other things that you, I guess you know what are the main things that you would recommend that people can do right now to tune their brains well. Well, I think, first of all, it's, it's, it's to better understand who we are. That's why the first part of this last book is called, Who Do You Think You Are? Because you know, we have this imperial sense as human beings that we really are invincible and we can do what the hell we please. Uh, it's clear to anybody who sits down and thinks these days that that's not true. We can see limitations in all sorts of ways, not only in the environment, and but also in terms of our social organization. You know, I mean... Uh, uh, we could go off on that madness of crowds. For, but So I think that, um, first of all, you have to realize there are limitations to who we are, that our, the way our brain works is largely by, um, it's driven by these very fundamental and primitive survival instincts that um, we have an extraordinary capacity for memory and that that uh, what I call intuition in the book, develops through experience essentially an autopilot. So most of what we do every day is not consciously driven. It's pre-consciously driven. And so all your social behaviors, almost all of them, and even many other behaviors are habits. They're habits just like you know, when you cycle to work or drive to work, you take the, you know, you go, you don't even think about it. You get there somehow, but you haven't consciously reflected upon that. Well, that's because your brain takes that over and you don't need to reflect on it consciously. If you think about that in a social organization, then what you teach kids in their, in their youth, go back to the, you know, the iPad or whatever, some other electronic device that engages them. What, by the time they're two years old, you've really formed an incre incredible um, um, baseline of habit that will be with them for the rest of their lives, yes? And 
So you have to think about how are we tuning our brain right from the very beginning. And then as the individual becomes more conscious, and this is what the task of education is all about, we need to build in these reflective exercises so that indeed one does become well tuned about oneself. One learns about one's, we each have amazing capacities, but they vary among individuals and they vary among individual groups as to what we prefer, et cetera, et cetera. And that's the beauty of a democratic society. You can choose more or less what it is you want to do, et cetera, et cetera, if it's working properly. So that whole process of tuning becomes very important. And you have to recognize that, at least I believe one has to recognize that that can be distorted by, for example, the markets we create. And that is very rarely talked about. I mean, the fact that you can't buy a house in London is driven in part by the market, yes? Because everybody else wants to live in London. And that's fine, except that means that you're on a continued escalating climb where a lot of people are going to be left behind. So you have to wonder, is that good or bad? I'm not terribly political, but it has huge implications in terms about you know, how kids grow up, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that, I think that um, once you get to that point, then you can ask yourself, what is the best form of what is the best marketplace that we should human beings love markets but a, a sort of um, devil take the hindmost everybody out for themselves uh, no no common uh, taxation thread that enables uh, enables um, uh, a common infrastructure to be built, which is one of the big problems. You know, one of Trump's big things in America at the moment is we our infrastructure is crumbling. It's true. Nobody has invested in it for 20 or 30 years. So um, you have to ask then what sort of markets serve the way in which uh, the brain best develops. That's the first part of the book. The second part of the book is is very simple, and it it, it goes through a series of discussions about trust as we were just talking about it and then the other wonderful things about human beings you know what about what about our imagination how does our imagination drive our social order you, you could make a very good case for the fact that our capacity to imagine ourselves in the future is what drives much of our technology our ability to imagine ourselves in the past is what drives most of our religion you can you can you can begin to understand human culture through the lens of neuroscience. And that's really what the book is about. So then you ask, what is a well-tuned brain? Well, it's a balance between the excitement of the new, the excitement of the future, with an understanding of what we've learned in the past, you know, to, to, to essentially throw history into the dustbin and say, well, you know, that's not important. That happened in such and such a time, and we're not interested in that anymore. Um, I think that's a big mistake because we, people like Hume and Smith and others in the 18th century, on which our current political culture is based, by the way, in the Western world, as I said before, the concepts of the Enlightenment philosophers, if you don't understand that, 
then you don't know how we got here in the first place. And if you don't know how you got here, you're not really clear about where you're going, yes? So I think it, it's, a, it's a philosophical as well as a practical amalgam that I'm trying to build with these various books. Fantastic. What would you say, then, are the most important human traits, and how can we cultivate those? Well, I think um, um, we've touched on them to some degree. One is individualism, obviously, individual initiative and um, the opportunity to uh, engage one's curiosity is absolutely essential. And that's what uh, a free society is designed to try to do. Now, if but the other part of it is this balance between the freedom of individual expression and the way in which society must run, which is by you know, definition uh, collaborative because it, there has to be a common good. Otherwise, you know, we'd have chaos, yes? So you've got to find that balance between the two things. So I think at one level, it's attachment and the awareness, empathic awareness of others that, as, um, as Smith said again, it's it's only through the um, you know, he he talks about the, you know, the the shoemaker and the candle maker and the and the tailor and all those people. It's only through these others who contribute through their own self interest that I have the good life that I have. And you, otherwise, you'd be making all your own shoes, all your own suits, all your own furniture. You know, you, it's these. So that's how society works. But that has to have a set of rules. You have to have the way in which we all agree upon it. You can't exploit people, et cetera, et cetera. That's what we constantly are trying to balance against individualism. So it's individualism and attachment and empathy that have to be balanced. And societies are constantly swinging back between those two things. And so in the recent election that we talked about in Britain and in the U.S. before we went on the air, I think that... Um, uh, you see that you see that uh, uh, oscillation very clearly because you've got a group of people who feel they're being deprived of their individual liberties and rights in Brexit uh, or in the votes for Trump here, and they are neglecting the understanding that they're a collective. I mean, I'm generalizing, obviously, a collective infrastructure is necessary in order to make individual liberties possible. So if it may well be that there was a necessary course correction that we've regulated ourselves too much, et cetera, et cetera. I don't, I don't take any position on that, but you can see the pendulum is swinging back and forth. That's a good sign, but we have to find some way, ideally, in the middle where we can both thrive as individuals and, and, and express the creativity that is natural to every human being at the same time as we can live in harmony and empathic understanding of others. So you know, that's, that's long been the philosophical drive of Western societies, and um, it gets pretty hairy at times, but I think that um, that's, you know, tyranny doesn't work. Uh, absolute socialism doesn't work, which is another form of tyranny. And so, you know, we have to be we have to be vigilant. Now, why do you need vigilant people? Well, because of what I've just been saying. But how do you get vigilant people? You get them through a process of education and understanding, 
and reflection, self-reflection, which is the metaphor I use for the well-tuned brain. Um, unfortunately, we've come to the end of the interview. Um, where can people find out more about you and your work? Um, well, I, I have a website. I'm, I'm, I'm a little. Uh, I don't. I don't keep it up to date as much as probably I should. But um, uh, peterwybrow.com, www.peterwybrow.com. Uh, you'll find some stuff there, and then uh, the books um, are pretty much available. I think in the. Uh, in they're they're there in Britain as well as here uh, um, in the U.S. and most of the uh, they've been translated into various actually interestingly into Russian <laughs> the last one and China I don't know why they got interested but they did and um, so they're they're in various uh, you can get them in various places and uh, there's you know you go to Amazon you'll find them there and so on and so forth. Fantastic. Well. Peter Wybrow, thank you so much for spending time with us today. I really appreciate you sharing your time and your wisdom with us. Well, thank you very much for the invitation. I appreciate your your efforts in this regard. I think you have a very good uh, program and a good project there. I, I think some of your podcasts are fascinating. I've been listening to them. So thank you for that. <laughs>